Good morning. My name is John Ross. I am the assistant pastor here at Crawford Avenue. I have the joy of preaching this morning. Uh, today, I'll be continuing our series in Philippians, focusing on the theme of joy, as you can see in bright, colorful letters there on the screen and on your bulletins. Uh, but the theme of joy can be found throughout the letter of Philippians, and we are doing a series focusing on that joy. So open your Bibles to Philippians 2. We're going to be covering 12 through 18. That'll be found on page 981 if you're using one of the black Bibles provided in the chair or pew in front of you. As you open there, recall that uh, last week, uh, Don, who had our pastoral prayer this morning, took us to the mountaintop of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where we considered Christ's matchless humility. For though he was in, the very in very nature God, he made himself nothing for our sake and bore our sins on the cross, as we have just sung about. So today, looking down from that mountaintop, we'll see the path ahead of us in today's passage. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom... You shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would give us grace this morning, grace to humble ourselves before you that we might walk in obedience. Oh Lord, give us joy in Christ-likeness and send your Spirit to guide us in purity and in truth. Help us to hold fast to the word of life that we have seen and known in our Lord Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. One of the many struggles that I have as a father of four girls who I am incredibly proud of and love very much is the struggle to communicate the importance of obedience. That is both an inward struggle and an outward struggle, I assure you. I want my kids to know that the rules that I have for them, that I have put in place, are for their good. They're not arbitrary. And if they pursue obedience, that their lives will be filled with greater joy, greater peace. A common phrase around our house is, you can't get good things by doing bad things. And we also ask, was that selfish or was that selfless? As they know that Christ is the one who is perfectly selfless. 
But my kids are just like any other kids because my kids are human and fallen like the rest of us. When the rewards of selfishness seem greater than the rewards of obedience, like us, they often choose selfishness. But it is not so with Christ. I think it's safe to say that no one had more joy than Jesus, and yet his life is one that is entirely selfless. Christ did not pursue a life of luxury, comforts, or dominance over others. Jesus knew that true joy cannot be found by pursuing happiness directly. True joy can be found indirectly through humble obedience. As we study today's passage, we'll see this, and this is our our three points for today as well. We'll see that Christ-like joy is rooted in obedience, expressed in humility, and endures to the end. It is rooted in obedience, expressed in humility, and endures to the end. So first, let's consider that Christ-like joy is rooted in obedience. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 13 as we do that. So if you were to jump into a conversation that I had a week ago, you might have heard me say something like, let's kill every last one of them and be done with it. And I hope you would ask, what are you talking about? And you would find out that I'm talking about the ants in my office. They're driving me nuts. So likewise, as we jump into the middle of this text, we don't want to assume that we know what's happening. We want to say, Paul, what are you talking about? Because here at the beginning, we see a therefore. Now, if you've been in certain circles for long enough, you know that the therefore is there for a reason, right? So we're going to see what the therefore is there for. And I've got a, a happy little chart that we can put on the screen. Uh, this section of Philippians is what's called a chiasm. It's a fancy way to talk about uh, a way to organize thoughts, okay? And the uh, chi is the Greek letter. It looks like our X. The idea is basically that you're going one direction and then you come back the other direction, okay? So last week, we see Don covered at 1 through 11, and here's, here are the themes that happen in that section. Paul says, complete my joy. He appeals to the church to, for humility, unity, and sacrifice. And then he points to Christ, our example of obedience. Then we get to a therefore. Church, follow Christ's example, his example of obedience. And then Paul will talk about humility, unity, and sacrifice. And at the end, he says, rejoice with me. So that's important for us to know the, the method in which Paul is thinking and organizing his thoughts, because we'll have to point back to that section in order to fully understand today's section, just like you wouldn't jump into a conversation and expect to know what it's talking about unless you know the context. So in last week's passage, Paul said that Jesus, in verse 8, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In parallel, 
Paul calls upon the church to do what? In verse 12, it says, as you have always obeyed. Now, there is none more obedient than Jesus. And praise God, when we submit to him as Lord and Savior, his perfect righteousness becomes ours. But in addition to that, Christ calls us to a life of righteousness. He is not only the one who earns our righteousness, but he calls us to righteousness. He perfectly obeyed the Father, fulfilling the law and the prophets, and praise God that he did, for our salvation is in him. And when God the Father looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. But if we are to follow Christ, Paul says that we too must be obedient. Now consider that Jesus, having all power, all authority to do whatever he pleased, submitted himself to obedience to God the Father. Let me put it another way. If you were God, you could do whatever you pleased, and you would be right in doing so. Would you submit yourself to another? Would you submit yourself to the Father as Jesus did? And the answer in our current sinful state is no, but therein lies the difference between the nature of Christ and the nature of the sons of Adam. As God the Son, Christ obeyed his Father perfectly. Hebrews 4, 15 says he was without sin. Christ was so connected to the Father, so in sync, that in John 14, Jesus says of himself, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He later says that to know him, Jesus, is to know the Father. So Christ's joy is rooted in obedience to the Father. To experience the same joy, we must obey our Creator, who made this world, who made each one of us, and who knows what is good for us and for our lives together. Why then do we expect to arrive at joy through disobedience? Or as is said in our household, why do you think you could get good things by doing bad things? <laughs> Will we really find some shortcut to joy that God was not sure about? A joy hack where we could sin and thereby slide in somehow into the joy of God? Absolutely not. Perhaps instead you believe that if God exists, that he's just not good, and you'll thereby declare that you know good and evil better than God. Well, you might think yourself cute or fresh as some rogue thinker, but you've only strengthened the Bible's veracity, for that's what Adam and Eve concluded. And they found that their joy and their satisfaction frightfully diminished. Conclude, therefore, with Scripture that Christ is both our new life through salvation and the pattern our new life should follow. Now, continuing our train of thought concerning obedience, we see that the obedience at hand is described as working out your salvation with fear and trembling. What are we to make of a phrase like this? It sounds scary. What does fear and trembling mean? Well, throughout Scripture, there are 
admonitions to fear God. When the Bible speaks of fear, it doesn't speak of fear related to horror or phobias or cowardice. This is a fear of reverence, knowing that you stand before someone glorious, someone majestic, someone powerful and perfect in justice. Fear here would be the opposite of words like flippant, words that show apathy, indifference, maybe casually. It does not say, work out your fear casually as you have the time to do it. There is no indifference here. In fact, Proverbs in chapter 1 verse 8 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To know things, to be wise, you must first fear the Lord. We are to fear God in the way that a child should rightly fear a loving father. Now, there's a big difference between my kids being afraid of me and rightly fearing me as the one who has been put in charge of them for a time. When we serve God and obey Him, we are to do so with fear and trembling, not with contempt, not with apathy, or even from a sense of merit that we're trying to get on His good side. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling is to admit that we do not see perfectly, we do not see clearly, and we trust the God who does. We serve God knowing that He is just, powerful, kind, and that His ways and His thoughts are far higher than our own. It is the, true, is the fear of a true child before the most loving and just of all fathers. So this phrase at the beginning, work out, this is not like an exercise. The Greek is katergatsesthe, okay? That's a mouthful. Uh, but this is my kind of verb. My wife, Brooke, is incredibly patient with me, and the times where she has to be extra patient with me is when I have an unfinished project. I loathe starting a project and leaving it unfinished. There is currently a fence that does not have paint on it, and I think about that as I talk about this. Katergatsesthe is a verb that means to work at something until it is complete. Hallelujah. That's my kind of verb. And it's in the, uh, the tense that would be like the y'all tense, all right? So he's saying to the whole church at Philippi, y'all work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now note, this is not work for your salvation, which would be entirely different. It is not work for your salvation with fear and trembling, but work out. So if we're going to put this verb into, um, into an example, I would say, imagine that you have been gifted a jigsaw puzzle. We have lots of jigsaw puzzles at our house. We work them out. Uh, you didn't make the puzzle. Somebody else purchased it for you, has given it to you. And whether it is assembled or not, it is still a puzzle. You did not create the puzzle. But there is joy and there is satisfaction in working out the puzzle, in bringing it to completion and seeing the bigger picture as it comes together. 
Likewise, if you have been gifted salvation in Christ, knowing that we did not create salvation for ourselves, but it has been purchased for us by someone else, there is joy and satisfaction in working it out and bringing it to completion as we see the bigger picture come together. And what a joy it is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For we are called not to piece together a cute picture of puppies in a basket or hot air balloons. We are called to work out eternal things, to dive into the scriptures and plumb the depths of God's grace, to find satisfaction from day to day in His provision, to trust that His ways are better than our ways, to get on our knees and repent of sin and ask for forgiveness, to find rest and peace and freedom and hope in the gospel, to order our days with wisdom and enjoy its fruits, to trust our Heavenly Father with each day as He further unveils His picture of grace for us. There is joy in working out our salvation in the Lord. And not only that, we have assurance that God will bring it to completion. As we read in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Peter repeats this idea in 2 Peter 1.10-11, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Continuing in verse 13, we see that as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, as we consider this, we must consider what this is not. This is not synergism, two things working together in need of each other. Or as one comedian puts it, my belt is holding up my pants, but my pants are holding up my belt, and I don't know who the real hero is. This is not synergism, okay? It's not God one side of the saw and you on the other side of the saw trying to cut the tree down, okay? It's also not let go and let God. God does not control you remotely like a robot or inhabit your body like an avatar. If anything, this working out tells us get moving. God is working in you. And praise God for that. Does that not fill you with joy? Does that not stir your affections for Christ and for a broken world, knowing that God wills to work in you, and He will do that? You can greet each new day with the expectation and the satisfaction of knowing that God wills and works in you and through you and for, your glory, for His glory. And if you have another day, it is a day where God calls you to follow Him and to glorify Him. He is not done with you yet. Theologian John Murray puts the relationship this way. God works, and we also work. But the relation 
is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. Fifth century theologian Augustine of Hippo says, Our deeds are our own because of the free will producing them, and they are also God's because of His grace causing our free will to produce them. Consider also that after making it very clear in Ephesians 2 that Paul says that we are not saved by works, that we are, as we have sung, that we are saved by grace through faith and it is not of ourselves, that he says immediately thereafter, Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And it is His good pleasure to work in us. Most of us would expect to read, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who reluctantly works in you because somehow He got stuck with you and He'll just have to make do. No, Christian, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Find joy in knowing that God wants to work in you and through you for His glory and knowing that He will not fail in either His will or His work. Next, Christ-like joy is expressed in humility. So it is rooted in obedience, but it is also expressed in humility. In verse 14, we read, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then we stop and read it again, because it seems almost impossible to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling means, it's sometimes translated complaining or murmuring. Uh, Disputing is sometimes translated questioning or arguing, depending on the translation. But both of these things seem like second nature to us. This is the water we swim in. I didn't realize that until uh, in 2005, I did a mission trip to Indonesia. I was doing an, an English club, which is just uh, like they, they talk together in English. And uh, I was the guest for one of the, what they call a talk show, uh, which is not a TV thing at all. It's just like, like this in a room, practice talking. And one of them asked the question, uh, I've heard that if you want to talk to somebody in America, you first have to complain about the weather. (laughs) Why is that? And I then had to explain about how weather patterns shift, but I also had to explain that we are discontent. Weather is one of the things that uh, has not been a consumable item yet, has not been marketed. Complaining, grumbling, disputing, arguing, it's the way we make small talk with one another. It's what we're fed through talking heads on TV and radio and podcasts, and what we voluntarily listen to. It's what we read and watch on social media. This is 
this is in our culture, but just because it's in our culture does not mean that it is good or that it's normal. The grumbling and arguing that Paul is mainly concerned about here is about how we treat each other in the church. In last week's passage, we were giving a do-nothing command. Do you remember that? Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And likewise, we have a parallel of do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do you see the relationship between the two? Friends, conflicts and disagreements are inevitable because we are fallen people. We will have them. But the way you handle yourself in conflict speaks volumes about your understanding of your salvation. If your salvation were earned or merited by your works, you would have a right to stand in front of your neighbor and to say what you have done and to proclaim your goodness and to proclaim your righteousness. But that is not how we know salvation. We know salvation by Christ who took the cross for us. So often we look at the world around us as an example, as the height marker, so to speak. We consider how much better we behave compared to the world. The church, we cannot compare ourselves with the standard of the world. (laughs) Our standard is Christ. It is Christ in all his perfections. And while we will not be able to be perfect in this life, we strive to be like Christ as much as we possibly can each day. Because if the Lord of all creation could humble himself and serve you, surely lowly sinners like us can simply serve each other. The posture that a Christian must take in order to complain, in order to argue, is simply one of self-righteousness. Now hear me on this. I would argue even that in a twisted way, such a self-righteous posture considers equality with God a thing to be grasped. Because what we do when we take a position of complaining and arguing is saying, I know what is right and good and it's not happening. I am the authority on what this should look like. And I will pour out my wrath on you because it's not happening. It's a posture that says, I'm the authoritative voice. I know all things. Anyone who thinks otherwise is less than me. But instead, we should say, Christ is the authoritative voice. He knows all things. I am merely his servant trying to serve him. Let's serve him together. And Christ was in very nature God, and yet he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And each and every day, we try to rob God of his glory. 
Christ knew that the path to joy was not to be found in power, in titles, in winning arguments online. The path to joy was found through humble obedience. And there's a part of us that says that doesn't make sense. There's so much wrong in the world. How could I not argue? How could I not complain? But as we'll see later in Philippians, we are to meditate on what is good and right and truthful and commendable. Now, you know, Christ and the Lord often work in ways that we feel are backwards. Christ, God the Father, grew the nation of Israel from an old man and an old woman who could not have children. The Lord's design for salvation was through the victory of a cross. The way the Lord works in our lives is not always clear to us. Over and over in Israel's history, what do we see? That they don't turn to the Lord, but they instead turn to a practical solution that they think will get the end that they want. Remember that as Jesus taught, who was it that grumbled? Who was it that argued? It was the Pharisees. The Pharisees who felt like they knew the Scriptures and were vehement in their positions. But Christ knew their hearts. Who is it that Christ recognizes, speaks to, and grants forgiveness? It's the humble. Now, this portion of Scripture, we know that Paul, um, as, as a Jew, as a scholar, knew the Word well. He knew his own heart well. And as he quotes, for, or as he writes 14 and 15, he's actually pointing us back to the Old Testament. This portion concerning grumbling and disputing is meant to remind us of ancient Israel in the wilderness. Ancient Israel was never satisfied. They were always bemoaning. Why is that? They had forgotten their salvation. And as you read the text throughout the Pentateuch, throughout the first five books of the Bible, you keep saying out loud, Israel, have you so quickly forgotten what the Lord did for you? Have you really forgotten the plagues? Have you forgotten going through the Red Sea with the wall, like the water, like walls on both sides of you? Have you forgotten the column of of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night? Do you not realize that the Lord is with you? Do you have you have you so quickly forgotten your salvation? No, why? Why do we complain and argue? because we've forgotten our salvation. Christian, have you so quickly forgotten the cross of Christ? Have you despised His sacrifice and demanded more than what you have been given in Him? Is His salvation not enough? Brothers and sisters, let's look to Christ and His salvation and be satisfied to know that we do not deserve any more than hell and damnation, but have been granted eternal life in Him. 
This next section also is meant to point us back to ancient Israel, and I'll explain. He says in verse 16 or 15 that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And if you go back to Deuteronomy 32 verses 4 through 5, you'll find a song. It's a song that Moses wrote. And if you spent time with us in our cohorts last semester, we were in this part. We went through the whole book of Deuteronomy. And you'll remember that this is a song of rebuke. Israel's often called a stiff-necked people. It's another way of saying stubborn. Because despite their salvation, they continued to grumble, complain, and argue. Hear what Moses writes about the people that he loved. It's very clear in Deuteronomy that Moses loves the people of Israel. The rock, his way is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Speaking of Israel, he says, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you hear Paul pulling these phrases out in our passage? Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Paul says, don't be like Israel in the wilderness. Instead, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that we may be children of God. So that we may be what Israel in the wilderness was not. Now, could it be, you might be asking, could complaining and disputing really be as bad as this guy in the yellow shirt's making it out to be? Friends, Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And if the church is not known for that, we're walking in disobedience. If we are, not, if we are to be known for our love for one another, we must start with Christ and his cross. For no man has greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So if we want to experience a joy that is Christ-like, it must be expressed in humility. Paul says here that if we allow this, if we are doing all things without grumbling or questioning, that we will shine as lights in the world. Some translations say stars. And the word here is one that simply means a light-bearing object. So whether it's a torch or a lamp or a star, you will shine like stars in the world. And in order to shine in the darkness, you must be distinct. There has to be something different about you. If you are worried that doing something like this will make you too different, you're worried about the wrong thing. Paul is saying you must be distinct from the darkness. You must burn with the love and joy that come from Christ if you are to shed light to a dark world. And you will necessarily be distinct. But friends, there is joy in this kind of distinction. 
finally. Christ-like joy is rooted in obedience, it's expressed in humility, and finally, Christ-like joy endures to the end. Remember that Paul is writing this letter from the confines of his imprisonment. While his vantage point, his position, might be one of constraint, his joy was not constrained in the slightest. Paul has Christ-like joy, a joy that is rooted in obedience, expressed in humility, and endures to the end. And as he talks to the church, he has the end in mind. You see in verse 16 that he tells them, hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, which is the day that is coming, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. By holding fast to God's word, the church's joy will endure to the end. Like Christ, Paul is willing to be humbled for the sake of the church, as even from jail his hope and his joy are found in the church's flourishing. That's the kind of love that we should be known for. That's the kind of love that we want to have where our joy is made complete by knowing what the Lord is doing in other people. I might be in jail, Paul says, but I'm stoked about what the Lord is doing in your life. I just hope to be a little part of it. Here at the end, we showed our chiasm earlier, beginning with joy, it also ends with joy, and it is a quadruple joy. In the translation that we have in front of us, glad and rejoice are actually the same Greek verb used uh, in this way. I am joying. We don't really have that, right? Joy is not a verb for us. I am joying. I am together joying, followed followed by be joying and joy together. Now, that joy that he talks about is not a reference to self-fulfillment. He's not saying, I hope you get your dream house that you have uh, pictured for yourself after watching hours of HGTV. He's not saying, I hope you get the car that you've been drooling over. He says he wants our lives to be lives of sacrifice. And we see that here. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Our lives are to be lives patterned after the sacrifice of Christ, a life laid down in humble obedience. In Christ, we are called to be a royal priesthood with our very lives as the sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. And see here that in humility, Paul considers their work the main sacrifice, while his sacrifice is simply the drink offering. Now, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, a drink offering was merely a complement, a little bit extra, to put on top of the main sacrifice. It accompanies It comes alongside. Do you get what Paul's saying here? It accompanies and comes alongside and is never offered alone. Paul considers his life 
a compliment to the church and not the other way around. Paul considers his life poured out, never to be recovered again, freely extra because of his love for the Lord and for the church. And I wonder, church, is our joy like Paul's? Are we ready to be poured out for Christ, never to be recovered? Do we consider ourselves and our individual work as a compliment to the church? Or are we waiting to see if the church meets our standards? Scripture calls us to humility. It calls us to a humble obedience. Do we have a posture where we stand ready to critique? Or do we stand ready to encourage? Friends, may we discover, like Paul did, That true joy is not found by directly pursuing whatever our desires may be at the time. But true joy is found through humble obedience. Let us look to Christ, who is both our righteousness and our pattern for righteousness, and humble ourselves before him. Let us be unified as one church through obedience, humility, and joy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, you are our joy and crown. We have no good apart from you. By humbling yourself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, you won salvation for us, even though we did nothing to deserve it. Help us by your Spirit to find joy through humble obedience, patterning our lives after you, trusting that you are good, that your ways are higher and your thoughts are nobler than ours. Heavenly Father, you have exalted the name of Jesus above every name, and it is in his name that we too will be exalted. So it's in that name, which is above all others, that we pray. Amen.